Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels part 54. Last week we saw the end of John the Baptist's story with his beheading, unfortunately, with Mm. Herod and Herodias' daughter, him rebuking Herod because of taking his brother's wife to be his own and trying to fit all the pieces together of where that was at, how long it would take for them to send for John the Baptist's head and, and to come back with was the party still happening and then yeah. we left off the story Jesus is about to find out that this man that he was related to he was very close to in some respects he's going to find out that he had just passed away yeah yeah days of our lives got nothing on the gospels hmm? <laughs> this is this is uh Thick plot stuff, yeah. Well, okay, so um, I know that we've done this before, and you know what? It's going to happen again. It's going to feel, in some ways, kind of like a big switch or change of scene or whatever, but uh, still some very interesting stuff coming up, so let's get to it. Let's see, we've got Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, and John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Sounds like a lot, but I'm going to read from Mark. Let's start there. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. All right, so that's the good basic story. I am going to read a few little bits from the others just because they have different endings. For example, in Matthew, he says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Luke says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And then John says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So not not a great deal of uh, matching across the Gospels here. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. But just so you can kind of get our place, you know, all along you've probably noticed we're not exactly going through each Gospel in its written order. We're trying to do the chronological thing, and so we're bouncing around a little bit. So as far as Matthew goes, um, we are following the part where Jesus hears about John's death in Mark and Luke. Okay, it, it definitely follows after John's death, but it's, it's more like the continuation of the sending out of the Twelve. And then in John, and I can't believe I remembered this, this is following the story from the pool of Bethesda. Remember when he healed that guy, Samuel? And then mm-hmm. there was a big speech that followed all of that. But here's the thing. I don't know if you remember way, way back in John chapter 4, verse 40. That was the last time we even hear about the disciples in the book of John. And just mm. think of all the things that have passed in between. It's just kind of weird, kind of crazy. Uh, but anyway, we made it here to, to chapter 6 of John, and the disciples are back. So there you go. Uh, but anyway, the 12, they return. Remember, they were out, and they were supposed to be basically acting on Jesus' behalf. They were apostles. 
And they return and they start telling Jesus about all the things that they did. And we really have no idea how much time has passed. But John tells us that at least right now, that it's the time of the Passover festival. So, you know, that I guess in some ways helps us narrow it down a little, but not enough to like actually really know anything. We just don't know. And I'm just going to say it out loud again. Just because it says Feast of the Jews, it's not like there's some an intention from John to infer a, a separation, like uh, this was something for the Jews, uh, but not for Christians. It, it's, it's not a supersession kind of language. It's really just saying, hey, look, it's another Judean festival, one of the big three, the pilgrimage festivals. So anyway... Uh, Jesus now knows of John the Baptist's death. Presumably, all the disciples know. Everybody knows. Now, when you read Matthew, it's kind of as if Jesus wants some alone time. And you even think that it's because of this news. Mark makes it sound like, well, they were trying to get away because of the crowds. The crowds were just so needy. They couldn't even find time to eat. And and Samuel, does either one of those make sense? Seem to be. Yeah, they both make sense, right? So, you know, whatever. Uh, we'll just take them at their word. There's probably both of them had something to do with it. The thing is, they end up in a boat. And, uh, okay, kind of depends on who you're believing and who says what, where, when. Let's just say, according to the text we had right here, they're headed for Bethsaida. But... It also says that they went to a desolate place to be alone, and Bethsaida isn't a desolate place. So, we get the sense that, I don't know, maybe they actually lingered out on the sea for a bit. Maybe maybe that was their desolate place. Or, maybe it was just somewhere that was, you know, kind of near Bethsaida or something like that. The point is, somehow, people are seeing them. They, 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 I guess they're, uh, well, they recognize who they are, however it is they do that, and somehow they, they figure out, well, this, is must, this must be where they're going, and somehow they, they beat them there, whatever that means. I, it's just kind of funny, kind of crazy. But anyway, it's probably somewhere in the vicinity of Bethsaida. Crowds are waiting. They had seen what he could do, or, or maybe they've only heard about it, whatever. Remember, it's a Passover, so lots of people, and the, the, the people want more of it. They want to see more. And I'm going to say it again, Samuel, can you even imagine the kind of crazy pressure that was on their lives, knowing, I mean, they can't eat, apparently. There's just too, too many people uh, after them. They can't mourn the death of somebody like John the Baptist, the guy that, that was the precursor to the Messiah. I mean, this is, this is crazy pressure. And I think sometimes we just don't really take account of that. Jesus's life wasn't this, you know, all smiles and lovely and just kind of moseying around the, 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 the nation of Israel for a few years while he's going to go to the cross. He was giving his life way before he ever made it to the cross. Yeah, it sounds very emotionally exhausting, and it gives a clearer picture when we see other stories where Jesus is falling asleep in a boat during a storm, or the text right. reads that they brought him, quote, just as he was, to sort of imply that maybe he was a little rough around the edges in terms of how the his interactions with the people were leaving him yeah. Physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually. Um, so he definitely showed that he struggled. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It reminds me, um, we we don't talk a lot about particular resources or denominations or shows or whatever that have to do with Bible or whatever. But this this it really reminds me, there was one particular episode of The Chosen. I can't even remember. I kind of think that it was in season two. But it's, it's a cool picture of what we're talking about right here. And that's all I'm going to say. You can watch it or not. I don't care. But so, yeah, here they are. And, and Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. 
And and well, they they word it different ways. It's like he has compassion on the crowd. He welcomed the crowd. I mean, that's inner strength right there. He healed them. He cured them. He taught them many things, taught them about the kingdom. But then John, (laughs) poor John, on the other hand, he's got Jesus going up on a mountain somewhere and teaching his disciples. Remember, it says that he sat down with him, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of variety in this little lead up to the next story. And then it sort of magically all comes together. Now, let's read that next bit. We're in Matthew, still chapter 14, verses 15 through 19. Mark chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 to 15. And John chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. I'm going to read from Mark again. You ready for that? Oh, yeah. Here we go. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And I'm going to add just one little bit from John. John adds right at the end, So the men sat down about five thousand in number. Now, I know it's 2021, it's America, and we've probably all been to, like, I don't know, a sporting event or something. So for us to imagine 5,000 people gathered in one place, well, yeah, we've all been there, done that. This is a really big crowd. It's just Mm -hmm. a really big crowd. And, well, I'm not going to give it away. Let's keep going because there's so much more to say about that. So here's the thing. It said... It had grown late. And so, all right, we get the idea the day is coming to an end, and the disciples, and and I think at the very least it's the twelve, they come to him and they have some, uh, let's just call it some caring and practical advice. You should send the crowds away so they have time to find some food and maybe even lodging, whatever. So if you were there, you were a disciple, you were at a... If you didn't know what was about to happen, well, this would be awesome behavior. I mean, someone has to think of these things. So before you start busting their chops for, you know, not being hospitable or something, I mean, they were in a weird position. So they were actually trying to be helpful. I think it's fair to look at them that way. But about this thing about growing late, we kind of got to be careful with the picture that we're developing in our head. Matthew says it's evening, Mark says it's growing late, Luke says the day is wearing away, but don't make it too late in the day because we've got a lot of stuff that still has to happen before it gets dark. So you need to imagine yourself, you know, late in the day, but still early enough to leave time for the crowd to eat and they still have to be sent away and find some lodging and all this. Otherwise, it's just going to get confusing later. You'll feel like it's like nightfall over and over or something like that. So be careful with that. But anyway, Jesus really surprises them. He says, hey, don't make them go away. You feed them. And understandably, the disciples are perplexed. And they can only come up with five loaves and two fish. And from all the stories, presumably it's just from this one boy. Now, there is no possible way that this is going to feed a crowd of about 5,000 men. And so, if they instead went to buy food, here's the important part. Even if they went and spent 200 denarii, that's not even going to be enough for everyone just to get a little. A denarii is one day's wage. This is a single man's 
200 days of wages. If they went and bought that much food, well, still, it's a crowd of at least 5,000. It's just not all that much. So, what do you think about this, Samuel? When they say, what, do you want us to go spend 200 denarii and buy a bunch of food? Do you think they had 200 denarii? No way. No? I, I mean, I don't think that they would have that much at, in hand. Right. It sounds, I mean... Kind of, Sarcastic. Yeah, it's really hard to know. But here's the thing. Remember we talked about there were the, those women who were funding the ministry? I don't know. It's, how do I say this? There is so much of the story that's left out that we really just can't know. I mean, in the end, you kind of got to go, well, I don't know. Did they have 200 denarii? Hmm. I think the answer is uh, yes or no. And that's about as close as you can get. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just kind of how it feels. Like what you said, man, I don't know. I, I have trouble imagining these guys having 200 denarii sitting around. Right? But who knows? Maybe they did. They could have had it. Doesn't seem normal. But John's telling is very unique because in in the other three, it's, hey, no, you guys feed them. Well, what are we supposed to do, Jesus? But in John's story, it's it's a very specific test of a very specific person. Jesus asks Philip about it. The whole interaction is with Philip. And we get no indication of why he's singling him out. You know, other than he's about to, you know, show off a little or whatever you want to call it. It's just very weird. Why Philip? Why did he pick on him? And why is John the only one telling us that? No one else did. It's very strange. But in the end, I guess whether we ever know the answer to that or not isn't so important. Everybody's going to sort of learn the same lesson, or at least should, from this event. So I don't know. I just think that's crazy. And I feel bad for Philip. But whatever. <laughs> now, let's start talking about some loaves and fishes, Samuel. So these loaves. Samuel, when you go to the grocery store, you go to the bread aisle, how big is a loaf of bread? Uh, probably a little over a foot long. Yeah, may- maybe even 18 inches. Or it's, you know, normally that square looking thing, or sometimes you get the special breads that are more lumpy or whatever. But... A loaf of bread is pretty big. Pretty big. Okay, get that picture completely out of your head. It is nothing like that. With these loaves that we're talking about, think of like a single small flat tortilla or pita kind of a thing. Now, maybe it was more loaf-like instead of flat-like or whatever, but you know how small that is. That's what we're talking about. Five of those. And the fish, there was only two, but they probably weren't much more than like what we think of as dried sardines. So by today's standards, we would probably look at this and we'd be thinking, I have a snack, you know, for myself. (laughs) It's it's just not that much food. And, And... We wouldn't even think of it as a meal, maybe for this boy, if he was a small boy. It might have been meal-like for him or whatever. But how many people are here, Samuel? 5,000. At least. Yeah. So so just so you know, when we're talking about five loaves and two fish, it's already a spectacular miracle if you know what's coming. But they were a lot smaller even than we usually, I think, even give them credit for. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then Jesus has the crowd to sit. He wants them to sit down in groups. Interesting. So they sat in groups of fifties and hundreds. Hmm. So the question would be, why did he want them to sit in groups? It just sounds a little odd. And the English translation isn't actually really helping a lot. Let me, let me change the image for you a little bit, Samuel. What if it said... It was more like they should recline in groups, very similar to the way that you might expect someone to recline at table. Now, can you at least a little better imagine why he might want them in groups? Normally, when you're having a feast, 
a dinner, a banquet, anything like that, you have these large tables, but they're not like what we think of as tables that are like waist high or whatever. They're lower, and you recline by like leaning in toward the table, and people sit all around, and, and the point of it is, well, it's very similar to tables today, the fellowship, the the interaction, that kind of stuff. But he's having them all recline in groups, and that's giving everyone the idea, well, what's going on here? This is what we do to eat. It's 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 feasting time, if you know what I'm saying. And what now, Samuel, I want you to think forward in the whole big story. What does it remind you of when you think about huge numbers of people at a feast? Uh, isn't there like a big meal that's shared between Israel and all the nations within the Messianic era? Yes, when Christ returns, there's the big Messianic banquet. And everybody's going to be sitting, presumably either at the same table or many tables or something like that. But this is, it's kind of a, an image of that. So anyway, you've got that. It's painting that image. And then, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's having them sit in groups because it's going to help him get a head count or something. Because he's got, <laughs> hey, if I'm going to multiply this thing, I got to know how far I got to take it, right? I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. The Jewish version of multiplication tables. That's right. That's right. Tables. I like it. So here's the thing. It tells us that there are 5,000 men, but that may not be the total number of people. Remember, John told us it was what holiday, Samuel? Passover. And what happens on Passover to people all over the land of, of Israel? They all flock to Jerusalem. Yeah, they are all heading into Jerusalem. So there's lots of people everywhere. And when you go for Passover, entire families travel together. I think we've already talked about that somewhere in the past. So when it says 5,000 men, there may have been tens of thousands of people there. And you thought 5,000 was a lot when we started. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. And so, the other thing, he has them recline, and they're reclining on the grass. And this is kind of cool, too. They says that it's Passover. When does Passover happen, Samuel? What season? Uh, let's see. If take Passover and then convert that to our <laughs> Christian <laughs> holiday of Easter, then that has to be springtime. Yeah, it's springtime. And so, there's grass. Green grass, a lot of grass. Now, here's the thing. It said that they were in a desolate place, did it not? They went to a desolate place. However, that word in the Greek, okay, I guess in the Greek, it really is a lot more like wilderness or desert. It's not often used for a place that is grassy or filled with, you know, vegetation or whatever. So here's another really good instance where, hey, you know what? If we go back and look at what the Hebrew would likely be behind that Greek, it's actually kind of helpful because that word would be, it could be a pasture. I mean, that would be included. It's certainly, if it's wilderness, it's like something uh, vegetation-filled. Wilderness is all very possible. The point is that word just isn't very narrow, and it gives us a much broader image. So when they say a desolate place— we might just think of it as simple as, you know what, it was an unpopulated place. And so it could have looked like anything, and in this case, it happens to be a pasture. But now, I know you've been waiting for this, Samuel. I see it on your face. You're going, is he not going to say it? When's he going to say it? What's coming up? So in this whole story, there are a number of allusions to some things in our Old Testament, specifically in our Torah. So, Samuel, I'm going to give you a chance to guess at all of them. So, we got the first thing. It's five loaves. Name me something, Samuel, that's always really popular. You start talking about the number five, what's the first thing that, that would pop into a first century Jew's head? The books of Moses, Torah. Yeah, that's right. The five books of Torah. He also said he had two fish. Can you think of anything, Samuel, anything that has to do with Torah that was famous as a pear. 
you have the two tablets, like yeah. the marriage contract between God and Israel at Sinai. Yes, the two tablets of the covenant. So that's it. Well, there's another one. That's good. Now, if I could interrupt our little thing here just real quick, the fact that it talks about fish and the fact that we're kind of getting this image of the messianic banquet and that kind of thing, I would like to bring in here, this also might allude to Leviathan. Because oh, isn't there a midrash that says that like in the messianic era, God is going to slay Leviathan and that's going to be the big entree at the dinner? That's what we're eating at the Messianic Banquet. That's right. <laughs> Hope it's tender. Oh, it will be. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know that that has anything to do with the story here other than it relates to the Messianic Banquet, but I just want to throw that in there So, because it's talking about fish. How about, this one's a little harder, this whole idea of groups of hundreds or fifties. Can you think of anything back there in that Torah, Moses era, whatever, when people somehow got grouped into, you know, something like hundreds, hundreds and fifties. This one feels a little more cloudy, so yeah. you might want to help me on that one. So, do you remember when Moses uh, gets a visit from his father-in-law, Jesse? And Jesse notices that Moses is just worn out. Wait, wasn't his name Jethro? Did I, what did I say? Jesse. Oh, <laughs> it must be Jethro. <laughs> Sorry about that. It You're started good. with a J. Close enough. <laughs> That's right. In fact, it started with a J-E. I was even closer <laughs> than that. So, so yeah. So Moses, <laughs> Moses's father-in-law notices that, that Moses is just worn out. And what advice does he give him? Oh, he tells them, you need to appoint people to help interpret these laws that God has given you because you can't do it all by yourself. And how are they supposed to help him do that? Um, do it in groups? Yeah, he actually said, I want you to appoint men. And I don't remember the numbers, but it's like, number, you know, like tens and fifties and hundreds, right? So he broke the people up into groups, sort of, and they were supposed to do what? They were to... Be, judge the people. Oh, yeah, judge. Yeah, which is another way of saying they were supposed to interpret the... The law. Yeah. So think about that. You've got the five books of Torah, the two tablets of the covenant, the idea of interpreting the law, judging the people, all of that in these numbers. This is kind of a cool look back, right? So the thing is... Just with what we've read so far, this is really obvious in the text. It, like, like the writer, the, he wants you to see this. He wants you to see something. And the question is, what? And we're going to not tell you yet. We're just going to keep going and build into it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just got to throw in a couple more things here. Um, yeah. If it, First off, Jews are way more in touch with the power behind numbers than we in the West are we treat numbers as a tool to get to an end goal and within Jewish thought there's hidden wisdom even with numerology so just keep that in mind um, yeah. and then the two the two numbers that we have so far if you combine them five plus two that, that makes seven Ooh. and seven is also a very Jewish number that represents completion and that hints towards the messianic kingdom um and the last thing, yeah. I just can't help but think that there's some Psalm 23 vibes going on whenever he's telling the groups to sit in the grass. Psalm oh. 23, 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. I'm just, yeah. that reeks of the good shepherd. That's really good. That is good. Yeah. So, and you know what? I mean, let's be honest, this is true now and probably through all of the episodes that have preceded this one. I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff we're missing, but yes, it's just filled with imagery and it's, it's very, very good, especially since it's spanning all four gospel accounts. Kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's keep going to find out what happened. 
So now we're in Matthew uh, chapter 14. We're going to pick up in the middle of verse 19 and go through 21. Mark chapter 6, 41 to 44. Uh, Luke 9, 16 and 17. And John 6, 11 to 13. And boy, let's see. Uh, let's go ahead and do Mark. He says, uh, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And now, in case you think that we were just making stuff up out of thin air, the idea that there could have been more than 5,000, Matthew does us a favor at the very end of verse 21, and he says, there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, it's a big group. Big group. So even breaking them into 50s and 100s didn't help them count very precisely because we still got the 5,000 men thing. But whatever. Okay, so you got to get the imagery here. This is, you need to try to find a way to get back to first century Judaism in Israel to, to imagine what's going on. It says that he said a blessing and broke the loaves. Now, this... It's just very ordinary Jewish behavior. Jesus, in this story, he is doing what, you know, basically every head of every family did at every meal. They blessed God. And I just have to say this out loud. They did not bless the food. (laughs) They were blessing God. Because he is a provider. It is an expression of thanks. But he, he, they bless God, they break the bread, and they distribute it. So this would have been very normal. It's customary at an actual table. Jesus does it here, right out in this desolate place. Now, we're going to see more examples of this, and most specifically, we'll get to eventually the feeding of the 4,000 and the Last Supper. But interestingly, the Torah only commands that you bless God after all eat and are satisfied, Hmm. which is kind of funny because what did they say when they were talking about the people? They all ate and were satisfied. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what the Torah says. You're supposed to bless God afterward. And we don't get any, any text that tells us they did that, but... This uh, blessing before the meal, it wasn't in Torah, but it was just normal behavior in Jesus's day. And so you see him doing the normal stuff. He breaks and passes the fish also. It doesn't give a whole lot of detail about that, but you can see that it's included in there. But now I want to, I'm going to lay something on you, Samuel. I don't think the bread and the fish were just about food. I think the bread and fish represent something. And we're going to find that more as we go, but I'm going to tell you now, because I think it'll help in understanding some things. Do you want to take a guess first? Um, I just know that I am feel like I'm being sent back to the story of Israel being out in the desert with um, without food or water, and God provides oh. provision for them with manna. And even, like, there's phrase phrases that are like, mirror images between especially the um the mark and the matthew version that we have here and then in deuteronomy 8 when god is telling moses to recount their time in the desert with manna and water from the rock and then he is picturing forward to the messianic kingdom and i think it's in verse 16 uh Verse 10 of chapter 8, after he says that this land that I'm going to give you that's flowing with milk and honey, verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. That is that's the thing that matches with, you know, the all eight and we're satisfied deal. And that's exactly where we're headed as we continue in John six, but it's gonna be, you know, a few more little sections before we get there. But yeah, that's exactly where we're going. But here's what I want to just lay out there. This bread and the fish, I mean, obviously in the story, it's food, but I think we're going to see that it represents, it's, it's symbolically going to represent teaching. And so hold on to that because I think it'll help us understand some things as we go. Now, here's the thing. Now that I've told you it's teaching, this, I, I had to tell you because I want you to notice something. He gives the broken pieces to the disciples, and then the disciples are the ones who distribute it to everyone else. So it's from Jesus to the disciples and the disciples to everyone else. Now, that in and of itself is a very important image. We're going to see it coming up again, and we'll see how it relates. But I don't want to act like I didn't see it. In John's telling, it was Jesus that passed out the food. So three of them agree it was the disciples, but John says it was Jesus himself. And all I have to say about that is, sorry, John, you've been voted down. Three to one. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, we're we're going with the disciples passed it out. I'm not sure why there's that discrepancy other than, you know, the thing we keep saying about eyewitness testimony. It's just different and whatever. I, I wondered if maybe John had something he was trying to get us to see or understand there, but I don't see anything. It could be there, but, you know, whatever. So that's like the ordinary stuff, but now now we're to the crazy, miraculous part of the story. Somehow, everyone ate and was filled. So you had this thing that, you know, we were jokingly calling a big snack for a single person, somehow filled the bellies of 5,000 men, possibly tens of thousands of people, And as always, Samuel, miracles are in some way a foretaste of the kingdom. We've said that over and over. And what is it that we expect in the kingdom? What's that you think relates to this? Overflowing provision. Yeah, it's it's abundance. And it's funny, a, a large percentage of the miracles, the signs, they have to do with abundance, life in abundance. So we see it again. The earth is going to produce like we've never known. And, and this is just, you know, an image of that. Now, we've seen a number of major themes. There's been abundance. There's been health. There's been uh, demon-free living. I think we've talked about long life to go along with health. Um, this, although, you know, it's an image of what the kingdom is supposed to be like, it's also, we talked about that explicit image of the messianic banquet himself itself. So that's kind of that's kind of a neat addition as well. Now before you move on with this miraculous part of this story, yeah. Some of it may be left up to mystery that we'll never be able to comprehend or understand, but I just wonder did the people recognize that a miracle was going on in in the midst of the food being passed out because in other miracles that Jesus performs, there is a recognition between either observers or recipients of the miracle that something great had taken place. But in this story, it just seems like the text is saying everyone ate and they were satisfied. (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right based on what we've read thus far, but you're going to see it in just the next section. Oh, they, they get it. Now, you got to know, I mean, think of all those people. There's got to be some people in the back who are going, what's going on? What's happening? Oh, here's some food? Thanks. Where'd this come from? You know, (laughs) I mean, you got a picture. It's just got to be weird. But yeah, they're going to see it and recognize it. We just have to, uh, we got to get through this part first. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So it says they took up 12 baskets. Now, this is one of the jokes that, my wife and I always make about things we see around, but here's the thing. We don't know how big those baskets were. They could have been tinier. They could have been huge. I myself like to believe that they're huge, but whatever. We really don't know. They did, at least were called baskets. It's got to be something kind of big. And also, Samuel, where'd they get them? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. These baskets just, oh, well, I happen to have 12 of these <laughs> laying around. Let's use those. It's kind of weird, right? But they get filled with fragments of bread and some of the fish too, right? And, and here, like just the, the simplest point, there was more than was needed. So hang on to that. John adds an interesting little bit about when they're, they're gathering the leftovers. He includes this phrase, that nothing may be lost. Now, Samuel, here's a whole bunch of people eating a whole bunch of food, all this stuff, and now they're picking up like the leftover fragments and all that. Why would it be important that none of that was lost? Doesn't that seem a little weird? Yeah. Remember what I told you that the the loaves and fish represented? Teaching. And when you think about teaching, that it's important that none is lost. Oh. That sounds at least a little more sensical, right? So mm-hmm. we'll see if that kind of fits in, but that's a weird little phrase. And, you know, you got to know, obviously, they took time to to multiply the food and eat the food and do all this stuff. So it's even later in the day now. And they've gathered up all these leftover bits. And I don't know. I mean, you just got to think. Practically, they've probably been touched. Some of them may have been chewed on a little bit. I don't know. Whatever. They're out in this unpopulated pasture-like area. I, I just don't get why they needed to gather them up and why do they care that nothing is lost or whatever. So what we're going to have to do is look at some more illusion stuff and then try to put this all together. So Samuel, you tell me. If they picked up 12 baskets, what important thing might we immediately jump to when we think of the number 12? Well, I know that there are 12 tribes, or 12 sons of Israel. That's right, the 12 tribes. And that's, you know, that's the obvious one, and it fits with everything that was happened with the other illusions, right? Okay, and again, it's very obvious in the text, but what is it that it's trying to tell us? Now, I'm going to recount the, the numbers from earlier. You had the five loaves. That's kind of like the five books of Torah. The two fish. It's kind of like the two tablets. Okay, or Leviathan, whatever. And then you had the hundreds and fifties. It's kind of like uh, the advice to uh, Moses about uh, gathering the people together. And so, and then, of course, the 12 baskets, the 12 tribes. So what is the message? And now here's, I, I wish I could just go, well, here's the answer, but I can't. Because there are a lot of good ideas floating around, and I mean, like anything else, some of the ideas are far better than others. And so what I did is tried to pick some of the ones that I thought made the most sense. They seemed the most solid. So let's talk about a few of those. Number one, all of these numbers and all these connections that we talked about, well, you could say that they all relate to a single person. Who was that person, Samuel? Um, let's see. Got manna, loaves, uh, appointing people to judge, 12 tribes leading Moses. Yeah, Moses. They're saying that all these things le- uh, revolve around Moses. And, okay, maybe that really was the point, because what this is going to do, you'll see coming up, we're going to get into the the... Uh, text of John more exclusively for a bit, and you're going to see that this is talking about the prophet that was to come. Well, this prophet that was supposed to come was supposed to be a prophet like unto Moses. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that, that that's a pretty good one. I like that one. Here's another one. If you look at all of these allusions, all of these connections, they also seem to be centered around one particular story in the, the Torah. What story is that? Kind of like what I mentioned previously, the story of the Exodus and leaving Egypt and surviving out in the desert for 40 years. Exactly. Yeah. So somebody could say, oh, well, all of this, you know, the illusion, the reason for the illusion, they want you to think of the Exodus story, right? It's a very prominent feature in Jewish tradition. And here's the very important thing that happened and we don't think of it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. We've talked a little bit about it before. It's going to come up some more. 
the important thing that happened is that God came down from heaven to earth. That's what we see at Mount Sinai, right? Again, it's come up before, and it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, I'm sure, but it's going to be super important later, especially in what's coming up in John. So there's another one. Maybe this was all to get us to think about Moses. Maybe it's all to get us to relate to the Exodus. Here's a third one. All of these connections have something to do with God's instructions, the law. And and it highlights, in some sense, Israel's role among the, nation, among the nations. Because why were they given the law? So that they could obey it and the other nations could see who this God of Israel was, right? All that. So anyway, the instructions aren't just for Israel. They were given in abundance. And, and it's, how do I, it's like an overflow of wisdom because it's God's wisdom. And so the nations were to see it. It was to go from Israel out to the nations. That was the idea. And so if we think about the loaf, the loaves and the fishes being teaching, like the law, the instructions, Oh, well, Jesus' teachings only increase that all the more. They're not to be lost. They're not to be wasted. They should fill Israel to the full, and there should be plenty left over to, quote-unquote, feed the nations, the Gentiles. And think about it. A snack, a few loaves and fish, fed tens of thousands of people. What can 12 full baskets do? Well, it can feed all of the nations. You kind of see in the picture there, you see in what, what it's alluding to? And, mm-hmm. and this is going to, we're going to talk about it some more when we get to the feeding of the 4,000, because these two stories are very related. But it's, it, it, this whole story, as miraculous and awesome as it is on its face, it has this whole thing underneath of helping us understand just this basic concept of, yeah, this law from God is for all of mankind, and it's supposed to come through Israel, and what Jesus is doing, the story that's working out through him, it's, it's, it's not changing that. It's going to continue it and make it even better. So, there you go. Actually, you know what? There's one other little story. Just side note, okay? It, there were a lot of priests who were on duty at any given time because there were a whole bunch of priests, just generally speaking. One of the things they were supposed to do, part of their duties in the temple, they were supposed to eat the 12 loaves, the bread of the presence, the showbread. They were supposed to eat it. And it went like this. Sabbath would come, they would get up, they would bake the new loaves, and then they would replace them. You know, the new fresh ones would be there, and they would take all the ones that they were removing, and all of the priests were supposed to eat. Everybody was supposed to participate. But there were so many of them, those 12 loaves weren't enough. And so everybody only got just the, this little tiny morsel. And the story goes that it was a miracle every Sabbath, because not only would they eat this little tiny morsel and, and be full, but there were always leftovers. Now, is this a true story, like factual? I don't know. I don't know, but it was a, a legend or a myth or a story or whatever from the time, whether they really believed it or not, or whether it was really happening or not, I can't say, obviously, but they speak of it as if it was real. There was an actual miracle happening in the temple every Sabbath when this was going on, which is kind of neat. Anyway, I'm, I'm just bringing that up because that's another instance of eating and, and being satisfied on something that appears to be not enough. So, mm-hmm. so I throw that in. I'm, I'm getting some... Definite Lord of the Rings vibes with some Lambdas bread that the elves gave to the fellowship <laughs> right. that you could right. eat just a little crumb of and you'd be full for the rest of the day. Maybe maybe Tolkien read that midrush. Yeah. How many did you eat? <laughs> <laughs> Fat hobbitses. <laughs> that was so good. Oh, all right, Samuel, you know what? Jeez, we're already running out of time. Let's go ahead and do that one little bit. At least it can sort of sew up that thing that you were feeling wasn't getting satisfied for you. We'll get that finished and maybe we, that'll be our breaking point. 
Uh, In John, we're just going to look at John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. It says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Did they recognize he had done a miracle, Samuel? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I can't believe I'm remembering this either. Uh, if we remember all seven, this is that'll be a miracle of its own. The sign that he had done. Remember how we've been counting through the signs as John's been telling them to us? Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be seven of them. Well, this is number four. We had water to wine, healing in Cana, the healing at the pool, and now we've got the feeding of the 5,000. So, we got four signs so far. And if I forget the other three, then, you know, I gave you a good head start. Man, John feels like molasses compared to all the other accounts. Oh, it really does. It really does. All right. So remember in one of the illusions that we talked about, we talked about Jesus being the prophet who was to come. And this, this was a long-held expectation that one day there would be a prophet like Moses. And you know what, Samuel? Why don't you just read it? Just read it. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Yeah. And I know I saw it flash in your eyes. What story is coming up in our future that has something to do with listening to him? Oh, no. <laughs> It must have just been a car going by. <laughs> I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's the transfiguration. We'll get there. But let's keep going. So you remember, you may remember, uh, back when they were talking about John the Baptist, they were wondering about him. Was he the prophet? Right? Or was he the Messiah? Whatever. The question that, that maybe these people had, and, and we're not quite certain about how they viewed this, is, is the prophet also the Messiah? Or are, are they supposed to be two separate people? Or how exactly does that work? Now, the indications seem to suggest that dominant thinking was they would be the same person. And, and you can see here In this text, this is indeed the prophet who is to come. Okay, so that sounds like the prophet, like Moses. But then they want to make him king. Well, that's totally Messiah. So you get the sense that, at least in this text, they think that the prophet who is to come and the Messiah are the same person. And, of course, we now, in hindsight, we look back and go, ha, and they're right, because that's what's happening, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. Now, the question, though, what was it that Jesus did that led them to the conclusion that he was the prophet like Moses? And you've already given us the hint, Samuel. Well, Moses was responsible for interceding with God to allow them to be able to survive out in the wilderness. Yeah, and in some sense, it was Moses who fed them with the... With the manna. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, we know it was God that did that. I mean, everybody knows that. The Jews know that. everybody. But traditionally, when they spoke of it, they attributed it to Moses just because he was God's instrument or God's man or agent or whatever you want to call it. Now... That probably sounds just a little bit weird to us, but this kind of thinking is important to understanding the whole story, understanding the role that Jesus is playing, and understanding how it is that they were going to benefit from what Jesus was accomplishing. And this is all going to become clearer as we continue in John chapter 6, but we got some other things we got to cover first. But anyway, so there's that. So, they, they believe he was a prophet like Moses because he was doing things like Moses did, at least in some sense. So you got to give these people some credit. I mean, they're picking up on what is an incredibly important truth. Jesus is the long-awaited prophet 
priest, king, messiah, all of it. And still, Jesus does not confirm their suspicions. He he kind of kind of leaves them hanging. They're not going to get to see the bigger picture. And and I you know all these people again we've got people coming up for Passover all these crowds we don't know these people may not have heard any of the parables that he was talking about with the kingdom starting small and growing or any of that they appear like many other stories we've seen prior they appear to have a political revolution in mind a conquering king freeing them from oppression but Jesus knows that's not the real plan it's just not time yet and so according to john he slips away hmm I, I didn't expect that which part i guess um well first off the, the to go from exclaiming that he's the prophet to wanting to physically take him by force <laughs> that has some very zealot like vibes yeah, being given off to how they would transition to a response like that. So maybe that touches a little bit on maybe some deeper set beliefs that they had and what they were actually wanting with the Messiah and the kingdom. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they, uh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to, it also reminds me, I know this is later in the story, but when uh, certain groups within the Jewish leadership were asking Jesus by what authority that he's going that he's doing these things and there's this conversation back and forth between what was where was John the Baptist's authority come from and then these people said like their final answer was like well we don't know how to respond and then Jesus his response is well I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from so this is just like <laughs> right. another example of Jesus like deferring to yeah. what's being asked of him. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. And we're going to talk more about this because we're going to have stories about Peter and different things. We have highlighted, I don't even know how many times, a bunch of times people speaking in a manner as if they totally get it. You are the Messiah. What we've not seen is Jesus coming right out and saying it. He's you know, use some language, it's kind of suggestive, and, you know, all kinds of different things, but we just don't see it. it, it I don't know. The, the, the plot is thickening. You just got to hang on and see how it all works out. Mm-hmm. Paul, I got one more nugget that I'm just dying to get out of my, outside of my brain before we go. Do um, it! So, we were, earlier we were talking about the illusion stuff to the story, and you had, like, kind of three different points. And the second yeah. one that you said was connecting it to the Exodus story and this concept of God is the one that comes down from heaven to earth. And in that story, yeah. it was at Sinai. Well, I read something from this book, I think it was actually today during my lunch break at work that said that it was talking about the importance of the Hebrew language and how that allowed the Jewish people to survive while they were enslaved to Egypt. And the, and the Talmud says that the Jewish people, their like connection to God was becoming more and more faint leading up to like the Exodus happening because of their oppression. But it was their um, maintaining the Hebrew language within their conversation. They're continuing to perform the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision and then the actual giving of Hebrew names of their children at birth like kept that lifeline, that connection between Israel and God to lead them into this big revelatory moment at Sinai. And it, while you were going through that, it just made me think like how, how much more amazing would it have been at Sinai for them to have felt kind of estranged or disconnected and that you only had these little remnants of their past with Abraham and the first covenant made, and then you have this thunderous entrance by God at the mountain and giving him this big marriage ceremony. That's just so cool. And it, it showcases, like, you know, the bread of life, God's word, the importance of, like, God revealing yeah. himself through human language. And in this case, it was the Hebrew language. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. 
I like that a lot. And and while you were talking, I'm I'm thinking, yeah, here they were in Egypt, and they were all oppressed. And here they are in the first century looking for that Messiah, and they're all oppressed. Mm-hmm. Yet another connecting point. And I'm sure it goes on and on and on. Cool image. Yeah. See? And there you go, kids. Reading is fundamental. <laughs> All right. I thought you were just going to say reading is good. <laughs> oh, that's an old, uh, I guess it was some sort of government campaign to try to get oh, kids okay. to read. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I'm old. That's a boom. Yeah. I got a lot of them. I got a, I got a million of them. Stick with me, kid. But you know what? We should go. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See you all next week.